Hello students, welcome back. I do apologize about my two-week hiatus. I was asked to assist Professor Pendrake with an expedition into lands known to be occupied by some circle of Oberos. Which, who knew this info? Not entirely sure. Most of the time, Pendrake's expeditions to study extraordinary zoology are more or less safe. However, at this particular junction, he required myself, a jack, and a few soldiers to tag along just in case the druids had some issues with us getting near their sacred sites. All in all, saw a lot of man-eating plants and some particularly nasty war beasts we'll be discussing later this semester. Also lost some teeth, so speaking normally may be a stretch, but we must go on. As discussed in our previous lecture notes, we will be going over every known warlock in the Circle Oberos, their trainings, their history, and some of their particular skills, as well as some of my experiences with them, if I have any. At least as many as I can in this class. There have been a lot more known actions as of late, with the Circle almost like they are trying to halt some natural disaster or something. Let's see how many we can clear out today. Alright, let's begin. The Warlocks of the Circle Oberos are brought to you by the fantastic writers at Privateer Press. Working to forestall the unavoidable apocalypse, druids few in number and face many threats. Should they fail in their work, the devourer worm's attention would return to the world to topple mountains, set loose tsunamis, and erase humanity from the face of Cain. The monumental task set before them requires blacklads to be focused and pragmatic, but also to accumulate power. Circle warlocks are deeply political and ambitious. As they engage in far-reaching schemes, these druids seek to elevate themselves not purely out of self-interest, but also because they believe they alone possess the knowledge and mastery to accomplish their order's mission. In the circle of Ulbrus, the term warlock is rarely used. The ability to master a battle group is viewed as a normal extension of a druid's power. Being a warlock is a distinction only related to a specific daily bind and command of war beasts that answer the call of the blacklads, including the mighty natural constructs called wolves. These druids call upon the power of their beasts as much as they do upon the ley lines of Cain, also using their bond with these creatures to avoid injury and even death. For this reason, Circle of Obros are formidable battlefield leaders. Power flowing through blacklads gives them the supernatural health and vitality. Most live about twice as long as ordinary humans, some even longer. This longevity affords them time to gather power and to learn the mysteries of the order. However, their work is also perilous as they must stand ever ready to fight battles with rival powers. They are few in numbers and death of a blacklad is never taken lightly. Still, losses among the young and inexperienced are inevitable. The true purpose of the Circle of Obros are known only to its highest ranking members. It is not uncommon for lower ranking druids to be unaware of the significance of their missions. They often juggle seemingly contradictory directives while trying to rise through the order's ranks. Internal conflict is expected and even tolerated to a point. Though high-ranking druids do expect to be obeyed and use their power to enforce their will, those strong enough to evade punishment earn the right to choose their own path. Given their limited number, druids rely heavily on others to fight and die in their stead. Those enlisted to do so include the wolf sworn, warriors tied to the blacklads by old oaths and promises as well as a number of wilderness races convinced to support the druids by promises, extortion, and manipulation. But most vital to the circle's survival are its war beasts, both natural and constructed, which serve the most powerful druids directly. Fully understanding the value of this resource, 
the Circle of Oberos has created a substantial infrastructure dedicated to building wolves as well as safeguarding and training wild beasts. Next chapter, the wilding. Each black clad is born with a potential of endless power. This is called the wilding, an innate connection to the devourer worm. This connection taps into the primal power of the natural world and is linked to elemental chaos and predation as well as the energies below the surface of Cain, the magma, and the stone that are the very blood and bones of Orboros. The age in which the wilding manifests varies. It usually comes onto those between three and seven years old, but there are individuals who go through it later, even as adults. Those ignorant Orboros often mistake the wilding as for madness. It prompts behavior such as wandering forests alone at night, barking, howling, and exhibiting an animalistic behavior and staring deeply into the eyes of animals to sense their emotions. Most communities shun children who display these characteristics. Because the wilding is an inborn gift that cannot be taught, a top priority of the circle is to find and protect such individuals as early as possible and provide them with the training necessary to control their abilities. To this end, the circle has become adept at sensing the emergence of this power. The circle has refined its methods such that it can find these children regardless of where they are born. The highest ranking druids can sense the wilding as a thumbing across the ley lines. The druids have also kept a close record on bloodlines known to manifest the wilding, many whom now belong to Wolfsworn. These families are familiar with the signs of the wilding and willingly surrender their children who display such signs to the druids. Once the children with the potential to undergo the wilding has been identified, one or more experienced blacklads are dispatched to recover the candidate for the order. In some cases, druids may be able to persuade parents to voluntarily hand over the child, particularly if he is born into a wolf-sworn community already bound to the blacklads. In the civilized region, parents are more likely to be intractable, in which case the druids may need to resort to kidnapping. Under no circumstances is refusal accepted, a truth that is added to the sinister reputation of the blacklads. So that explains the kidnapping of children, we hear. At least they're not sacrificed in some blood ritual. At least not all of them. Next chapter, upbringing and training. A single mentor usually serves as a replacement parent, overseeing the young druid from the time of entry into the fellowship until the child becomes a full wilder. Such children are taken hundreds of miles from their communities to minimize the chance of contacting with their family. It is not uncommon for freshly inducted youths to try to escape and return home, but mentors ensure such efforts never succeed until a youth completes early training and can be trusted to enter battle alongside other members of the circle. His mentor might refer to him as a disparaging term such as cub, pup, worm, or weed. A true name must be earned. Wow, that actually explains a lot of why their names are so weird and nature-like. Huh. Mentoring a young druid is time-consuming and distracting, a task many black lads resent, though it must be performed this duty in time. Mentors are often cruel and unforgiving, subjecting their wards to a gauntlet of trials and severe training. Initiates learn to fear and respect their mentors, seeing them as an all-powerful and all-knowing. The relationship between mentors and their wards leaves a lasting impression on the youths and shapes how they wield their power and view the leaders of the organization. A druid's upbringing is harsh. Only the youngest are even remotely protected from life's hardships, and even they must soon learn how to handle themselves and survive. They are quickly introduced to, to the realities of the wilds and the elemental forces they must master. Young druids are subjected to injury, specifically to learn how to recover. They are steeped in the philosophy and principles of the Circle of Oberos. 
and all connections to friends and family are severed, even if the family is among the wolfsworn. The druids must stand apart. Blacklads are a tight-knit and secretive society who adherents draw a clear distinction between members and outsiders. By the time a new blacklad is fully indoctrinated, he is convinced the only other members of the circle are worthy peers. Every blackclad must be prepared to sacrifice subordinates and allies for the cause. Perhaps the most important skill an initiate will learn is how to tap into the mystical energies flowing through the ley lines that crisscross cane. The blackclads draw upon the energy and channel it into permanent standing stone sites to enable vital rituals. Most arcanists and mystics of Imoran are blind to the ley lines. But to the druids, they are tangible and real. This process changed the initiate's perspective, allowing him to comprehend his true nature and his connection to Oberos. Once the druids learned to sense the flow of the energies through the landscape and in other members of the order, he perceives a corresponding emptiness in ordinary humans. The distinction between blacklads and outsiders become undeniable. The wilding manifests differently in each individual, and a young druid must look inward to master that power. Each aspiring druid is exposed to a powerful beast the circle controls and tested for intuitive affinities. Exposure to wolves and raw elemental forces follow. Early in the process, a mentor can discern whether an initiate has the potential to bond with and control war beasts. Druids have greater success in developing those with that potential than any other organization in Western Amoran. Once training is complete, a druid is recognized as a full wilder a rank representing the capability, but no authority. Wilders are sent into battle as risky but effective crucibles. Senior druids do everything in their power to preserve youthful potential, but fatalities are inevitable. The same natural forces that ensure only the strongest predators survive also apply to aspiring druids. The weak are cold. Druids who endure and grow in power may be promoted to a warder, first rank where they actually bear responsibility. As a druid rises in the order, he earns honorifics have considerable significance and may change over time. Warders with ambition and desire to lead may eventually earn the rank of overseer. This station brings greater authority and the oversight of territories granted by the higher ranking superiors. As a druid ascends in rank, he earns larger and more scattered territories and tackles increasingly difficult tasks sometimes on his own initiative. Above the overseers are a small group of the most powerful leaders of the Circle Oberos, the Potents. At the highest rank of leadership are the three Omnipotents, a triumvirate that oversees the entire order and who work together have divided the known world between them. Omnipotents know the order's deepest secrets and full scope of its goals. Next chapter, Tasks and Responsibilities. As a blackclad evolves into his role as an agent of the order and a protector of its mysteries, he takes on a number of responsibilities. The infrastructures of the Circle Operos relies on the tireless efforts of its members. Senior blacklads divide larger tasks into smaller ones and delegate them to lower ranking druids, including both their own subordinates and any other they can persuade, intimidate, or extort to do their bidding. It is common for mid-ranking blacklads to be kept busy under the weight of the task demanded on them by more powerful individuals they fear to disappoint. As an added complication, druids frequently oversee territories that include large regions with the borders of powerful nations or held by a well-armed rival wilderness group. It is not necessary for the Circle Oberos to fully control a region to consider to be part of the druids' territory. For example, some key leyline conjunctions 
are inaccessible because they lie within major cities or are occupied by hostile tribes or armies. A droid with such holdings is accepted to keep a watch on these areas, either directly or through its agents, and to look for opportunities to break the hold of the circle's rivals. So if they don't control it, they do control it, and if they don't, they will. Makes perfect sense. Tasks related to preserving the infrastructure of the circle include building and repairing sacred sites, tending and training war beasts, constructing wolds, mentoring a wilder, and creating or maintaining relationships with allied organizations or potential minions. These sorts of missions a blackclad may be sent on include gathering intelligence, delivering vital messages or warnings, and fighting the Order's enemies. Warlocks handle a majority of combat-related tasks and missions. Such endeavors can include defensive measures, like keeping sacred sites safe from interlopers, or more proactive steps like gathering an armed force to track down and eliminate enemies of the Order. Some druids have specialized in leading strike forces, and their fighting talents are so crucial to the Order that they have little time for anything else. Warlocks are expected to see their responsibilities personally or through their intermediaries and allies, but can request aid from peers or superiors. The rise of major adversaries such as the Legion of Everblight have forced a greater degree of cooperation and the gathering of larger armies than has been typical in the past. And that concludes all the information we have on their training. I know it's not much, but it's kind of hard, I imagine, for our scribes to learn about a, a faction as secretive as the Druids and who don't talk to people very much. First warlock we're going to talk about, Boulder the Stone Cleaver, Circle Black-clad warlock. A bastion of strength and resolve noted for his steadfast loyalty, Boulder the Stone Cleaver is described among the Circle as the Rock of Oberos. Some jest he has spent too long communing with the mountains, for he is a calm and serene presence among the more passionate peers. When his battle temper is aroused, however, he becomes an unstoppable juggernaut made flesh. Boulder laughs off questions about his past, saying he was born in a bear cave near Borgsgate. But there is undeniable cardic flavors in his features and frame. He moves with deceptive ease as strength flows into him from the earth. His massive stone sword swings through the air and shatters anything it encounters. No other man has been able to lift this weapon, let alone wield it in battle. Boulder insists this has nothing to do with his strength of limb, but it is because the sword is as much a part of him as his arms, which makes sense for the guy who communes with mountains. Older than he appears, Boulder has overseen numerous territories in his tenure with the Circle has mentored powerful young druids such as Kaya the Wildborn and has established unusual friendships with outsiders. He cares nothing for druidic politics and reserves his philosophy for the shaping of stone. He has shared lore with Rulik stonemasons and even less contentious times conducted terse exchanges with the guardians of Ios. Once he was a welcome guest among the creels of the Thornwood in Scarfell and is disappointed by the rift with the Trollkin. But even so, he will not shirk off his duties when called to do battle with them. His logical and insightful appeals gives him his powerful voice among the ranks of the Circle. His promotion to Potent continues a gradual rise through the ranks, and he has been entrusted with the deeper mysteries of the Druidic lore. The Stone Cleaver is a paragon of earth-shaping path of Druidic magic. He deeply understands stone, earth, and the forest. He has mastered the shaping of wolves and their ilk, and he can infuse primal powers into stone runes. 
His thick fingers possess the skills and artistry of a sculptor, but his masterpiece brings to life and stride onto the battlefield to tear walls and beasts asunder. Boulders magic enlivens forests in even the most blighted places, and he uses the trees to cross enormous distances and pulverize the enemies of the Circle of Orboros. Everlight's menace has weighted heavily on Boulder's mind, and the dragon's unnatural blight warps all it touches, leaving scars that will never heal. Boulder has spent considerable time patrolling the wilds where the Legion have passed, smashing it forward elements whenever and wherever he can. Despite all these dire omens, however, Boulder somehow remains optimistic about the future, a beacon of energy and vitality who insists no defeat is final until all will is lost. On my few engagements with Boulder, well, at least, you know, this version of him when he was a little bit younger, I was always, uh, I was always curious why every time he hit something with that freaking stone sword, it always seemed to get heavier and way freaking slower. And those random forces just pop up in the middle of the battlefield. It's like magic or something. Which is a great joke because, you know, warlocks and warcasters are magical. Although, looking at him, actually, that, that explains why... I kind of sensed he was Kadoran a little bit, but definitely not, uh, definitely not raised as a warcaster. You know, I.e., you know, the stone giants he runs around with. Now the question we all ask is, could Professor Caster take on Boulder in a one-on-one -on -one fight? If I'm hit with this sword, the fight's probably going to be over pretty quick because uh, the weight of stone is pretty heavy, slow me down, and I would not be nearly as dodgy as I am right now. Let's move on to some current history about Boulder. Boulder the Stone Soul, Circle Black Clad Warlock. The deepest mysteries of Orboros were revealed to Boulder when Death tried to claim him. While the last tenuous threads of his life was held fast by Megalith, Boulder's soul escaped into Urcane amid the endless wilderness inhabited by the Devourer Worm. His spirit was subsumed within the entirety of Orboros, and the fundamental principles of the world were made clear to him. He experienced near total awareness, able to feel the crust of the world like it was his own skin before rejoining his more limited corporeal form. To say that Boulder came back a changed man is an understatement. After Megalith restored Boulder's body to life, the beast of all shapes flung his soul back into the world with the obligation to serve as a conduit for its power. The druid returned with new urgency, burning with certain knowledge of looming catastrophes and a slim chance his order had to set the world on a right path. Despite his connection to the worm, Boulder had no desire to see that entity fully manifested and unleashed on Cain. He possessed the foreknowledge of an apocalypse heralded by the gathering of dragons and a loose anthank fought over between Toric and Everblight's minions. Boulder played a part to mitigating these disasters, summoning earthquakes to drive the Crixian to the surface and joining the fight against the Legion of Everblight. More than any other member of his order, he knows the narrow margin by which unparalleled destruction was avoided. But the Stone Soul, also known worse days, are still to come. He is all too aware he has only limited time to assist his fellow Blacklads before his life is once again forfeit. As a conduit of Orboros, Boulder's body channels a torrent of power, energies simultaneously embodied the forces of both creation and destruction. No mortal flesh can endure such an onslaught indefinitely. While his connection with the granite and bones of the world has been strengthened, his very existence is a blazing pier that will eventually consume itself. In the midst of battle, Boulder can tap into these endless flows of to empower himself beyond his mortal limits. 
glowing with energy as his every blow strikes with multiple strength. The longer he fights, the more his body tears itself apart, and it is only by concentrated effort that he can damp these energies to sustainable levels and regenerate tissue rent by forces beyond comprehension. Given the limited time available to him, Boulder has no patience for the intrigues of the circle. The calm for which he has known is gone, replaced by an unremitting urgency and the unmatched ferocity in battle. The energies of the devourer rise within him as he fights, and the heady powers of chaos and nature rack his body even as they destroy his foes. He remains locked in perpetual struggle to retain his mind and will, to preserve his sense of purpose and solidarity with his order. Only Boulder's unyielding nature and constancy have let him retain his sanity against the ceaseless howling of the worm. Well, this is a guy I've met once before, and that explains why he is so much different now than when he was younger. His strength increased, his fighting way more ferocious, and that explains why there is a lot more roots coming up out of the ground. Could I beat Boulder now in a fight? Uh, depends on how long the fight goes. You'd have to come in quick, or you'd have to get him after he's already been ravaged by the worm, I suppose. My goodness, he is really good at controlling his area around him, able to create crevasses and the stuff, make all the ground super hard to walk on, pop up additional walls all over the place, man, out of stone just straight up through it. Uh, even the roots coming up make, make movement almost nigh around him. He is definitely a contender for field control. Alrighty, moving on to Grail, the Far Strider. Circle Wolfsworn, or La. Grail leads a band of wolves of Orboros with the same ruthless precision in which he wields his twin hunting blades. Devoted to the predatory aspects of the Devourer Worm, he commands men and beasts with self-assurance of a warrior who embodies the soul of the wolf. Born of one of the most ancient bloodline of the wolves of Orboros, Grail was trained to follow the orders of the druids, seen by his family as wise priests and protectors. At the age of 15, he was already the leader of a pack, and it was clear he would one day become the master of the hunt. It was the shock to him when, while hunting a stag, he realized he could feel the beating heart within his own chest and sensed the thoughts of the hawk above him. He feared he might be going mad, but this was his wilding. Most fated to wield the power of Obros experienced this change as a young child. Almost grown and with his own aspirations, Grail struggled to, to accept his new role when the druids took him from all he had known to initiate him in his first mysteries of their order. He soon became aware the black clads he had so revered were not what he had thought. They were not all wise and present. They eschewed the rituals he had been raised to believe were sacred. Worse, they were endlessly embroiled in internal scheming. That's why they say never beat your heroes. None of this matters when Grail stalks the wilderness, blades in hand. His prowess as a warrior has combined with his brutic powers to tr transform him into one of the most deadly combatants the Circle has ever known. Time and again his superiors have sent him forth to stalk and slay all manners of threats to their order, and on each mission the Far Strider has proven his worth anew. His ingrained obedience and loyalty may be an obstacle to greater advancement within the Circle's hierarchy, but these qualities also make him perfectly reliable and effective weapon a weapon increasingly in great demand by the Order. Since becoming an overseer, he knows he must learn to adapt to the endless intrigues while staying true to his beliefs and instincts. He remains most comfortable when he is sent to battle 
the circle's foes face to face. The resounding howls of his hunting pack rise above the trees as enemies die upon his blade, sacrificed in the name of the devourer. Honestly, I don't think I've ever actually ran into Grail in the field, but of course he is a younger circle and I've been retired for a couple years now, so maybe stuff's changed. Although from reading the aspects of this man, he is crazy fast, crazy dodgy, heavily armored, and he can make an entire army disappear in a blink of an eye. Very dangerous. Alright, moving on to the next. Kaya the Wildborn, Circle Blackclad Warlock. Kaya the Wildborn plunges herself into the minds of beasts with the abandoned unequaled among her peers. While riding the tide, she is a ruthless and savage creature who tirelessly stalks her prey day and night. Within the battle trance there is no future and no past, only the infinite present and sweet promise of blood. Her willingness to submerge herself deeply into the consciousness of her pack has worried her mentors, yet it seems inseparable from her nature. Older druids have tried to teach her patience, but she chaffs at their abilities to understand her ways. For Kaya the Wilding was no struggle but an awakening to her true self. She throws herself into battle with ardent courage, without worrying about her own preservation. The irrepressible spirit has led to victory after victory and provided unexpected windfalls to the Circle Oberos. Though she does not remember her early life, Kaya was born in the Eastern Ord within sight of the Thornwood Forest. She felt the wilding as a toddler and distressed her parents in the middle of the night on Calder's full moon by shrieking out her window. Even more alarming were the answering howls of wolves. Perhaps it was with relief that they handed their peculiar daughter to the broad-shouldered, black-clad stranger who came knocking on their door. Since that day, Boulder has been the only father Kaya has ever known. Though her path has taken her elsewhere, she always returns for advice, and he remains the only ranking druid she trusts implicitly. Kaya believes the other circle leaders are needlessly manipulative, and she rarely agrees with their decisions. She has no ability to govern her tongue and has insulted many of her peers without even knowing it. This directness may result from so much time spent in the minds of beasts that do not dissemble, lie, or understand tact. For similar reasons, Kaya does not participate in the schemes or plots for which the druids are famed. She finds the motivations of beasts more to her liking, as they require only food, shelter, and a strong will to lead them. Kaya prefers to let her actions speak for themselves as she strikes even harder against the enemies of the circle, and her effectiveness in numerous engagements with Everblight's legions has won her some measure of respect. Though capable of sacrificing if need be great, Kaya has a tight bond with her beast and is able to inspire them to remarkable efforts. Their loyalty to her is genuine. Her piercing eyes contain a cold, hard stare of the battlefield veteran twice her age, and with nearest glance she conveys that she has experienced her shares of horror and intends to do her part to end them. I have gone up against Kaya numerous times, and tell you, when they say her, her war beasts move like one pack, they are not kidding at all. It's like they're all just part of one mind, each hunting their prey. It's crazy. And like most warlocks in her order, she's hard to track down, because not only can she, you know, disappear, uh, she can also, it's almost like she's just walking through gates. She's in one spot one minute and then, boosh, she's behind you. Could I take her in a one-on-one -on -one fight now? Maybe. If she doesn't have any Warbeast with her, that would make it uh, 
make it more doable, but my goodness, she is dodgy and she'd probably just teleport away because that's what she do. Moving on to the next rendition of Kaya, Kaya the Moon Hunter and Laris, her personal light war beast. Also circle black clad warlock. Countless battles have honed Kaya to perfect fighting forms, providing repeatedly she has the will and strength to survive against seemingly impossible odds. She fights for the rush of battle, which brings her visceral joy, but also with a determined belief that her enemies deserve destruction. Her clarity of purpose springs from the same wild spirit that allows her to effortlessly control the beast accompanying her, including the great wolf Laris, who keeps a constant vigil at her side. She stands on the precipice of greatness and has proven her willingness to leap into the unknown regardless of the dangers and sees it. Laris is a creature of preternatural as he is wild, a cunning and adaptive reflection of some inner portions of Kaya's predatory spirit. He is the answer to Kaya's call for the other half of herself, and the bond between them is essential and profound. The link that joins her mind and emotions allows them to accomplish otherwise impossible feats. Kaya's power flows naturally through Laris, and Laris feels her wounds more keenly than injury to his own flesh. Outside of battle, his mind is soothing influence to Kaya's inner turmoil, and his instinct to preserve her life perfectly contrasts with her sometimes reckless courage. He is the manifestation of Orboros with the wisdom and personality all his own. Connecting to Laris was no simple feat, requiring Kaya to stretch in a way she had never had before. One key to unlocking this deeper power was learning the role of celestial influences empowering the circle of Obros. Under the tutelage of Morvana, the Autumn Blade, she began to tap into the moon's mystical pole on the blood of all predators. Morvana initiated Kaya into these elder rites by urging her to undertake a strenuous ordeal, climbing to one of the highest peaks in the Warm Wall Mountains to unlock her inner strength and predatory awareness. Atop the mountain peak, she arrived at nearly forgotten sacrificial site. She spilled her blood on ancient stones as lightning crackled across the storm-tossed sky. Then the black clouds parted and the three moons of Cain illuminated the tableau. She was startled and awed when the ghostly white wolf emerged from the wilds at the ritual's climax. With a single look, Kaya knew the wolf's mind and could sense its greeting. He invited her to hunt, and as she joined the wolf in the run, through the mountain passes, the two bonded inextricably. She named him Laris, after the second of the moons orbiting Cain. The ignorant call this moon baleful and wicked, and it is associated with storms and ill fortune. Laris has in fact proven to be a calming influence on the other beast accompanying Kaya into battle. Through the bond they share, Kaya can feel the complex flow of his emotions and thoughts, receiving warnings and sometimes seeing through his eyes. Laris does not filter the world through language, but boasts a keen perception and insight. He is an accomplished hunter and brave guardian. Though Kaya has become calmer since bonding with him, the cold predatory stare of a wolf sometimes shines in her eyes. A wolf feels no sorrow or compassion for its prey, and Kaya has put aside such human feelings knowing hesitation could mean death in battle. When Kaya descended the mountain and met again the autumn blade, the senior druid was surprised and unsettled by the way her protege had exceeded her expectation. The appearance of the wolf showed that Kaya had transcended the mentorship of elder druids. Kaya had learned from hard experiences that some of her peers will try to exploit her potential for their own benefit. 
Over time, her confidence has grown and she has learned to put her powers to use without becoming a tool of another and she has refined her instincts. Once she moved from battle to the next without thought beyond the moment, she has learned to transcend this, mastering deeper rites and rituals from the lore of beast masters who preceded her. The more Kaya learns, the more she appreciates the solid foundation given to her by Boulder, the stone cleaver. She intends to heed Boulder's example by focusing squarely on the enemy and ignoring all other distractions. The soil of countless wild places in Western Amor has tasted the blood of Kaya's enemies. In battle, she moves with fluid grace, amazing speed, and relishes being surrounded by foes. As Kaya leaves into the midst of her enemies, warp wolves, satyrs, and Laris suddenly appear from the shadows of trees, their limbs infused with vitality. Never has Carnage achieved such sublime perfection as when Kaya and her beast unleash themselves, holding nothing in reserve as they leave the enemy shattered and bleeding across forest soil. Looks like in the time that I have versed her, she has found a friend. And reading some of her exploits on the side pages, it appears that one of her major things she can do is send her guys out way far and then they were miraculously just appear next to her side. I guess that's her uh, teleportation type of situation now extended to her war beast as well. Great. Moving on to the newest rendition of Kaya. Kaya the Wildheart, Circle Black Clad Warlock. Kaya has mastered the art of running with the pack and her connection with her beast allows her to spur them to greater ferocity and effectiveness than perhaps any other druid. Her understanding of creatures of the wilds runs deep. In many respects, she thinks of her herself as one of them. Riding at the head of swift forces fighting with fang and claw, Kaya prefers to conduct her devastating strikes under the cover of night. Her beasts lunge amid the silhouette of trees to slaughter foes, reveling in the spirit of the hunt and the scent of freshly spilled blood. Though it is not so long ago that Kaya was taken in by the Order as a young wilder, she has grown into a role with the Circle and embraced her primal nature. Rather than squabbling with her peers over scattered territories and filling her time with the tedious tasks that so often fall upon the Circle's leadership, Kaya favors bold action, has committed to striking against Circle enemies wherever the need arises. With this focus, her tactics have evolved to emphasize timing, mobility, and evasion. The pack of beasts under her command strike with stunning speed and power, rendering the opposition incapable of adequate counterattacks. Conjured by Kaya's will, a natural fog and shadows accompanying her attacks and conceal her forces like a sentient shroud creeping through the forest. As her mastery over war beasts has grown and deepened, so too has Kaya's relationship with the great wolf Laris. That Laris is no natural beast has been clear from the time of his first appearance and this strangeness is uncovered by the way his very being has changed over time. The wolf has increased dramatically in size even as its demeanor has evolved, seemingly adapting with Kaya to better suit her as the battle companion. The two now fight as one, with Kaya riding on Laris into battle to skewer opponents with her spear, while the great wolf's jaws clamp down on exposed throats. Together they bound over the battlefields with uncanny speed and bring swift death to all who oppose the Circle Oboros. Kaya has recently offered promotion to Potent within the Order, an offer she ultimately declined, although her skills and contributions to the Circle would more than justify her advancement. Kaya has never had much interest in such responsibilities, nor in watching over territories. She prefers action in the field over the incessant scheming typical of the power struggles among the highest ranking members of the Circle Orboros. Even if Kaya has been willing 
she still would have refused the post because the offer was motivated by a hidden agenda. It was Morvana the Donche who recommended Akaya for Potent, in the hope it would allow her to reassign a number of territories from the renegade Potent Kruger the Stormlord, one of Morvana's longtime rivals. Kaya's refusal earned her Morvana's ire, but as let Kaya stay true to her determination to remain unfettered by the political maneuvering of her order. So now the wolf is big enough for her to ride on it. Great. Allows all of her and her war beasts to move as one full unit. I suppose it was just a matter of time before she started riding a wolf as well as leading a bunch of them. Uh, I don't look forward to seeing that in battle, and hopefully I never have to. Alright, looks like we have time for a few more, so let's talk about a, uh, a newer warlock that started coming into the scene that has been well seen. We of course are talking about Iona the Unseen. Not much has really been known about her, but we do have a few excerpts. And I have seen her once in battle, and I tell you what, I prefer not to have that happen again. Iona the Unseen, Circle Thorn Warlock. Though the Tharn possess their share of shamans, true warlocks are rare and revered, each a formidable leader, capable of unsurpassed feats on the battle. Iona the Unseen is among the rare few, a huntress whose fierce gaze can force obedience from both warbeast and subordinate Tharn alike. A fearless hunter, Iona draws on the predatory aspects of the Devourer Worm, granting her forces speed and stealth as they surround her enemies like a pack of desk wolves. She employs clever feints and decoys and relishes the sight of her enemies' confusion as her pack slowly encircles them. I have been looking through the archives for more information about Iona because, my goodness, enemies as if they're not even there. And the, she's insanely quick, crazy dodgy. Nothing stops her. She can walk through like small warjacks and then increase their, you know, well, they usually don't wear armor, but actually increase their armor up to a point where most blades usually just bounce off of them. Honestly, I would never want to see her again if I can avoid it. <laughs> That's if I even saw her in the first place. All right, class, I think we'll have to bring it to a close there. We have a lot more Circle of Oberos Warlocks to get through, and if we kept going through them, we'd be running this more like 50 to an hour class. Thank you all for coming today. Um, also, homework, please like, subscribe, comment, tell me how you like the course. Please share it with your friends. Another thank you to Privateer Press for allowing us to read this phenomenal lore and discuss it on our podcast. And class dismissed.